Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to a special episode of SG Explained. We are in between seasons, but Elliot and I are coming back to you for a special episode just because we feel like it, you know? How are you doing, Elliot? <laughs> I'm doing good, man. I I don't know if we're recording this with video today, but I'm actually in my new house. That's why maybe my mic sounds a bit better too, but I finally had my fresh little setup over here yeah well listeners if you can hear a difference in elliot's voice do let us know yeah a compliment me on the fact that i actually <laughs> spent money on this stupid road mic <laughs> elliot we we have a lot of exciting stuff planned for season five we're launching that in march so it's coming very soon uh, if you're listening to this in fact but we have a new co-host coming on board. She's already agreed. We're gonna no be <laughs> we're gonna be sharing more information very soon. But we're bringing on a female voice, someone who's actually very, very interesting. She's done a lot of cool stuff in her life, and we just want her on board because she's a good friend of both of us. Uh, but we wanted to bring something different to the table, and so we're very excited to have that. More information coming soon. It's gonna change up. It's definitely gonna change up a bit. Uh, we're gonna shake up the way we do SG Explained. Uh, you know, coming up into the next season. But it's, it's going to be fun and I don't think it'll take away anything from what we do today in the sense of still going to be very interested in Singaporean stories, Singaporean culture, what it means, you know, to inherit the Singapore identity or even adopt it. Absolutely. Yeah, so season five is coming up, but in the meantime, we wanted to bring you the special episode. Yeah, absolutely. Today's episode is actually brought to you by the National Library Board's One Story. You know, I'm, I'm a big singlet person. National Library Board's One Story is a national reading movement initiative to make Singapore short stories, which sometimes are originally written in Tamil, Malay, Chinese, or even English, available in other languages. This project aims to bring these stories to more readers beyond the language communities that they were originally written for. Which is why today's episode is all about the world of Singapore literature, or now more trendily known as Singlet. Singlet isn't new to our show, we've actually done episodes about poetry as well as drama and theatre. Even though the title is called Singlet, we'll be focusing specifically on Singapore lit in the fiction space. And you'll see that there's actually loads here, one could say loads of literature on the matter. I'm really excited to, to just dive into this. Oh, likewise, likewise. I think there's so much to talk about. I mean, listeners, you guys have been here for a while. You know that I am a huge nerd for words. So I'm uh, really glad and very thankful that National Library Board wanted us to kind of talk a little bit more uh, about these stories. So in all, you know, our regular SG Explain fashion, Today, we always start off with the history of Singapore literature. So let's dive right into it. Fiction writing in English, obviously, did not start in earnest until after independence, right? A lot of short stories flourish as a literary form, and the novel arrived much later. Go Po Sing, you know, he was a pioneer in writing novels well before many of the later generations, with titles like uh, If We Dream Too Long, that was published in 1972, uh, and it was widely recognized as the first true Singaporean novel. And also this other one, which came much later, called A Dance of Moths, published 1995. There were people who were writing in the other languages in Singapore. But I think a lot of the history here is very hard to keep track of. There's a lot of, I guess, just with any sort of history keeping with uh, writing, right? It's only whatever people are able to document and capture. So we're pretty lucky to actually have sort of a deep dive into If We Dream Too Long. You know, let's just read the synopsis of this book. The book follows the life of Kwong Meng, a young 18-year-old who had just graduated from junior college. He currently works as a clerk, a job which he hates and finds monotonous. Two of his junior college friends, Hawkeye and Nataraja, the latter who is uh, weirdly named Porsche, nicknamed Porsche, 
follows different career paths in their diverging lives. Hawkeye becomes a white-collar worker determined to climb the corporate ladder, while Portia intends to further his studies in the UK. Huang Ming meets and strikes up a relationship with a local bar girl, Lucy, Ooh. at Paradise Bar. Unfortunately, owing to their very different social backgrounds, the couple break up. And this is unfortunately initiated by Lucy. So Kwang Ming's really having a bad life right now. Sorry, my man. Hawkeye tries to matchmake Kwang Ming with one of his female acquaintances, Anne. Kwang Ming meets Boon Tik and Mei Yi, neighbors who are both teachers, and whom Kwang Ming finds an ideal couple. Hawkeye himself gets married with Cecilia, whose father is one of the richest tycoons in Singapore. Throughout all of this, Kwang Ming comes across as a rather passive figure preferring merely to observe and seek solace through activities like swimming in the sea, smoking, and drinking in bars. Kwang Meng's father suffers a stroke, which destined him to take up the burden of supporting his family. It's a very interesting sort of uh, melodramatic... It's slice of life drama. Yeah, slice of life. I think that's a very good way to describe it. I think it's meant to capture sort of the the feeling and, and sense of how life is like in the 1970s, right? It's, it's very 1970s, like middle-class life, you know? Exactly. Yeah, and, and I guess at the end when Kong Wing ultimately has to take up the burden of supporting his family, that's also a very sort of like Singaporean ending point where you just end up playing the role of a dutiful son, right? And and having to recognize responsibility and honor. Like the way I see it, it's this is a story that if you asked your grandfather and he told you, you know, he told you like this exact summary of his life, you'd be like, yeah, that, you know, that, that seems to be a, a trope even of a very strong part of the Singapore culture and identity back in the day. A lot of people, in order to make a living, to get by, to provide for family, these are the trials and tribulations of the 1970s middle-class uh, working man even. You know, I've never read If We Dream Too Long, but I love these kind of stories. Stories that capture something very quotidian, something mm. very relatable, and something that connects you to the past. Even though that it's called Singapore's first true Singaporean novel, it actually encountered a lukewarm reception on its publication in 1972. Go himself, Go Po Sing himself, said the local press was unenthusiastic and the university was not supported. The Straits Times reviewer, Chia Boon King, complained that the style is loose and inelegant, the prose putrid and flat, the jokes puerile and the dialogue chitty chitty bang bang. I don't understand what that means. Yeah, are they referring to the movie? Let's be real. First novel, this is considered the first true Singaporean novel. How many times have you done something for the first time, right? And it was spectacular. <laughs> let's, let's be super real. You know what's interesting? This was the reaction in Singapore. Elsewhere, apparently, the book received a more cordial reception. It was translated into Russian in 1975 and into Tagalog thereafter. And in time, it actually came to be appreciated by academics and younger readers in Singapore who responded enthusiastically when Go revisited Singapore to discuss the novel. I think there's sort of this appreciation of, you know, the story that Go was telling about that slice of life in that particular time. And I think maybe it is the value of, you know, looking back and appreciating that Go was actually trying to capture such a, yeah. an interesting moment or an interesting feeling even. Yeah, like, like a lot of art, honestly, you know, it takes time to appreciate and to see the value of it especially in retrospective. I think this is very true for novels um, that don't make it big in, you know, during a time that it's published. But many years later, you revisit, you revisit them and you realize like, man, even, even if it's true, right? Even if the style is loose and, and, and elegant, 
it still says something. And that's what literature teaches us. It teaches how to appreciate a lens rather than just the substance itself. So that's a really good one. Uh, one to put into an EPUB reader. Hey, any guys who, who do e-novels? E Since this episode is brought to you by the MLB, actually, we should also tell you, and this is actually, this was not part of this trip to us, but you know, one of the cool things that people don't realize is that you have the MLB mobile app. Yes. That allows you to find these books there is Overdrive where you can actually borrow books from the library. And so, mm -hmm. you know, there's nothing stopping you from actually finding a lot of these books directly from the library and being able to just, you know, get reading, start appreciating Singlet. Great shout out there, Rovic. Doing our job. That's a sick call to action, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> well, so let's, let's go through some other notable writers, right? There are people like Catherine Lim, right? She began as a short story writer. Uh, born in Penang, but has been Singapore's, I think, one of the most widely read authors. She's kind of a very household name, in fact, or at least in the literary circles and um, all the art people I know. If you mention Catherine Lim's name, they're like, yeah, 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 you're one of us, right? <laughs> Basically, she had these two short story books at the beginning of her, of her career. One was Little Ironies, uh, Stories of Singapore, which was published in 1978, and Or Else, The Lightning God and Other Stories, which was published in 1980. Now, these two books were incorporated as texts, actually, for the GCA O-Levels. So uh, maybe not our time. I don't remember doing it anywhere during our generation, but probably like the 90s or something. Like. What books did you do for your O-Levels? I remember doing Animal Farm and Merchant of Venice. I did Macbeth and... Man, my teacher's going to be so upset that I can't remember what the other ones were. <laughs> actually, I think it might have been... Oh, man, this feels really bad to say on air, right? But... I think it might actually have been a Singapore, <laughs> Singaporean novel. No, I, I was just... going to say, I wish my, my literature was more Singaporean focused as well. I appreciate that doing some Shakespeare. I don't think I would have read Shakespeare any other way, actually, to mm -hmm, be honest, mm -hmm. if it wasn't part of my literature text. No, no, totally, totally. But there is some, there is some value. Like, it's, it's really strange, but only at the university level, I think, um, that we started broaching Singaporean literature as something worth studying, some cognitive approach, in fact, some critical analysis towards them. From what I understand, actually, a lot of these things are moving up the chain. So at the O-levels and even at A-levels, uh, people are studying stuff like Harashama's Off-Center. It's, it's mm. a, one of the drama pieces that he wrote. It's, a, it's, a, it's an incredible play. I've watched one rendition of it performed live. It was fantastic. Well, we talked about Harashama in our theater episode. Yes, yes, so yes. If you want to listen yes, more about them, you know, go check it out. It's, it's cool. So these two books, right? Uh, Little Ironies and Or Else the Lightning God, they were incorporated as texts for the GCO levels. And, and Lim's themes of Asian male chauvinistic gender dominance actually marked her as a distant cousin to Asian American writers such as Amy Tan. Uh, she has also been writing novels such as The Bond Mate, that was 1998, so when we were around, and, uh, and Following the Wrong God Home, right? That's in 2001. Uh, publishing them to an international audience since the late 1990s. So this is, this is someone who's not just like confined within like a small circle in Singapore. I think she does have readership. Actually, I know she has readership uh, all over the world because when I, when I went for my um, exchange over at Berkeley, you know, um, when people, when I told people I was Singaporean in, the, in my literature cohort, they were like, oh, you know, I've read some of Catherine Lim's stuff before. I was like, oh, very wow, cool. I haven't. Cool. Yeah, but I have, at that point in time, I hadn't, right? So I felt very Pisces. I was like, wow, how? <laughs> yeah. Well, look, I haven't read Cap Catherine Lim's books. I've only read some of our op-eds, uh, I think, because she does get into the political space a bit. Yes. I, I think most of us are familiar with Catherine Lim in that form and function, at least in our gen. She has a huge body of work that I think is very respectable. And I have been trying to get more into singlet. I think I will talk a bit about some of our favorite singlets later. 
But I think now as a as a young adult, I also get to have friends who are publishing stuff, who are writing stuff, some of whom are in poetry, some of whom are in theater, some of whom are in fiction. And so I think as a result of that sort of closeness to these people, I'm also trying to, of course, be a better patron, be a better supporter, uh, and actually just value the fact that their stories are interesting stories regardless, worth following. Here's someone else to talk about, Gopal Bhartan, who actually has a very, very interesting story. So Gopal is a neurosurgeon who started writing, and he basically started as a short story writer and later wrote politically charged works like A Candle or the Sun and Sayang, which caught some controversy when they were first published. His ebooks are on the National Library Board mobile app, so you can go check those out. But he has a very interesting story that I think is worth like listening more about. You know, speaking of Gopal, let's just deep dive into uh, some of his stuff, right? So for Mr. Gopal Bharatam, like many other writers, you know, he started writing when he was still in school. He actually enjoyed telling himself stories and telling stories to people who listen, <laughs> which that's a quote, by the way, telling stories to people who listen. I was like, I think most storytellers kind of enjoy that. Huh? You can imagine telling stories to people who don't want to listen. It's really, well, it's really hard pain. Yeah, you can see it on their face, to be honest, when they don't want to listen. And then they're like, uh, yeah. Same, same. I like, it's like doing stand-up comedy in front of a crowd who just doesn't care for your jokes. Are you speaking from personal memory? Personal experience, dude. <laughs> Towards the end of his medical school days, he actually started writing weekly articles for the local newspapers and continued to do so for a year and a half. Abaratham then concentrated on his career and family life and did not do any actual story writing. However, he did return to writing in 1974 at the prime age of 39 when his first short story, Island, was published in this magazine called Commentary. Now, Baratham's literary work drew on his personal experiences of colonialism, racism, nationalism, industrialization, modernization, globalization, and Renaissance longings. This screams to me 20th century modernism I know, okay, I anyone... was gonna say it's definitely like drawing from the world and it's sort of influences and trying yes. to mold that into his writing right very much the themes of a lot of uh, 20th century modernist works so i think he not only you know being inspired by the world around him but he's also responding to like a movement here and these experiences gave him like perspectives attitudes and values that influenced his writing and was said to have given his work a depth and resonance that many younger writers could not really grasp at that time. Baratham addressed themes such as the stratification of Singapore society, alienation, fate, or choice, as well as dealt with political and moral issues. Now, the characters in Baratham's stories come from various backgrounds and socioeconomic classes. His stories are peopled by Indians, Chinese, Malays, Eurasians, Europeans, you know, the, the whole Singaporean shebang. Very essentially. diverse, essentially. Yes. It's going into a very representative space. In fact, it's trying to capture as much of, of reality as possible. There is an ambivalence about his stories because he leaves the judgment of his characters to the reader. And I love that. For its time, I would say a lot of stories haven't really challenged that sort of premise. Uh, but in, within the 20th century, this became uh, something which separated the good writers who were like changing the movement and those who were still trying to follow like old trends. This accords with a sympathetic understanding actually of events and people, their actions and their relationships. Um, and another characteristic of his writing is the use of blunt and strong language. Nice. When they say the use of blunt and strong language, you know what I'm imagining, right? It's just, he's just going to be writing profanities. Yeah, yeah, yeah for sure. <laughs> I love this guy already. Gopal Bharatam was one of the first Singapore writers whose works were actually published by British publishers 
and his novels A Candle of the Sun and Moonrise Sunset were first published by Britain's Serpent's Tale, while the former was picked up for publication by Penguin in 1992. You know what's interesting? The same books that were so well regarded outside of Singapore, they were rejected by local publishing houses. Wow, that's really cool. Actually, a lot of people don't know about Serpent's Tale, but that that used to be a very strong powerhouse back in back in the exactly. day. Exactly. And not only that, A Candle of the Sun became an internationally acclaimed political thriller and was shortlisted for the Commonwealth Writers' Prize in 1992. Later on, the National Book Development Council of Singapore awarded Baratham the commended prize for A Candle of the Sun in 1992. However, Baratham turned down the award and requested not to be considered for future awards by the council, stating that the council had standards different from what he had. He expressed disappointment that the book had not been considered for the top prize, despite the international attention that it had garnered. He argued that the panel of judges had been looking for a Singapore style of writing, which he did not adopt because he wrote for a wider international mainstream audience. What a badass. I like this guy. He's a neurosurgeon who decided to start writing, decided to go very, very mature topics, really draw from the world and actually in some ways challenge a lot of norms even within Singapore writing, right? Because I think a lot of people were still talking about very, very localized stories. And I think what Baratham was able to do was to really take the stories that were happening here and then package them in a way that a global audience would be able to appreciate actually sort of the dynamics that were happening here. So this guy is super interesting. He's definitely worth checking out. I'm going to try to find one of his books. But I think the point here is that you know, even singlet or the whole world of Singapore literature is not monothematic, right? There's so many different tensions that are happening. There's so many interpretations of what is quote-unquote Singapore literature. There's so many different preferences even by the different players in the ecosystem, whether it's the publishing houses, whether it's the audience. And I think Gopal Bharatam was really at the center of a lot of it in this space. Agreed, agreed. Okay, yeah, so that's Gopal Bharatam. The next person I want to talk about is actually an alumni of SGI, uh, so my school. We There was actually a Go Simtub Award. I have a friend of mine who won the Go Simtub Poetry Award. Oh, yeah? That's <laughs> yeah, cool. yeah. Nicole, Nicole Kang, you know, she wrote an insanely great poem, and I think she won the award in like 2013 or 2014. So Augustine Go Simtub began his writing career writing in Malay. And he burst onto the literary scene after his retirement, actually, with more than a dozen books of short stories, most of which were founded on his own personal history, thus making them part fiction, part nonfiction. Some of these books include works like uh, One Singapore and its two sequels, One Singapore 2 and One Singapore 3, which have found fans among the different strata of Singapore society and are well acclaimed by all. Again, like I said, this man is actually very popular within the literary scene. He's known as one of the stalwarts. And yeah, I think he's definitely made a huge impact, a lot of which is because of, of his ability to really work with the community. It's the cross-diversity that he represents as well. As someone who has also kind of like, you know, been part of the scene for a while, what the Gosin Tub Award, you know, that, that is named after him tries to promote is really the exploration of ideas and the exploration of reaching out to other communities. So I think that's Something which cannot be understated lah, at the very least for what it means to write singlet. Is singlet just one, you know, one thematic idea of identity or is singlet a lot more about challenging those borders and figuring out what the voices are as it adapts to the, to the decades and the years, I guess. Well, okay, the next one is actually something who I really like because I actually wrote my thesis on like comic books and there was a possibility I was going to write about Sunny Liu, um, who is actually a comic artist slash illustrator. He's won three Eisner Awards in 2017 for Best Writer and Artist, 
best US edition of international material, Asia, and best publication design uh, for his very uh, slightly controversial but very well acclaimed graphic novel, The Art of Charlie Chan Hock Chai, which also won the Singapore Literature Prize in 2016. The Art of Charlie Chan Hock Chai is okay, it's an experience. Okay, guys, if you guys have a chance to go pick it up, it's still sold in all major bookstores. Kinokuniya still has uh, is very well stocked with it. Uh, the library also has the art, art of Charlie Chan Hock Chai. This novel is quite politically charged. There's a lot of allusions to uh, the founding, well, governmental fathers la, of Singapore. I can see why it's very controversial because it, it, it does try to poke holes in arguments. It tries to parody, I would say, like policy in some ways. But at, at, at its very core, the art of Charlie Chan Hock Chai is, isn't trying... I don't think that's its main agenda. Its main agenda isn't to be political. Its main agenda really is to tell a story. It's, it's more of a Kunstler roman, where it's telling the story of the artist as it comes to be. Uh, and, and that part, I, I think, is the main takeaway points for the novel. But go read it for yourself. Uh, judge its political contents if, if you want to. And, and let us know, right? What Do you think that it, it's a controversial piece? I, I personally enjoyed it from like end to end. So much so that I almost wanted to write my thesis on it. Here's my one point about this, right? Or about actually all the writers we've written so far. It's interesting because if you've ever wanted to grapple with some of the tensions within the Singapore consciousness, right? Whether it's political, whether it's about modernism, whether it's about, you know, just very everlasting sort of ideas around race relations and class relations and all this other stuff. Actually, the literature that has already come out over the last 50 to 60 years has already captured a lot of that, right? So people like to think that a lot of Singapore creative works are safe, but no, it's like these pieces exist. They may have had some trouble with establishment bodies, but I think that is part of the tension that will always be there, right? But these books are out there. And in fact, they are in the National Library, right? Like some of these books are on Overdrive. Some of these books are available in bookstores. If you want to really stretch your imagination and engage critically, the key thing here is that, you know, as with any sort of content, any sort of literature, it's all about being critical. It's all about asking questions about like, you know, who's the author? What is the story they're trying to say? And is that really like the full story, right? And But but I think the point is that it's it's on us to be able to go and read these stories and try to piece together our own view of things. Uh, and it's a very exciting process, I would say. It's a great part of being alive in Singapore today and getting access to all the stories. Just to, to bring us back home, the late 2010 saw a trend of young Singaporean female novelists bringing out novels with international publishing houses that were based in London and New York. Some of these novelists include Charlene Teo, Kristen Chen, Bali Kao Jaswal, Clarissa Gunawan, Rachel Heng, Thea Lim, Amanda Lee Ko, and Ching Ching Li. And actually, on the point of Ching Ching Li, you know, let's talk a bit about some of our favorite singlet books, uh, fiction stories that exist. Ching Ching Li, actually, I was very happy to see her on this list that we, of course, extracted from our sources on, you know, Wikipedia and, and National Library Board. But uh, Ching Ching Li wrote this book called How We Disappeared. I think I've mentioned this book a couple of times on this podcast already, but it was really a great book for me. It's told from the lens of Wang Ti, who is basically a character who lived in the Japanese occupation and about how she was forced to become a comfort woman. And again, I think, uh, as I've said before on this podcast, I was just shocked to learn that this even happened in Singapore. But Ching Ching Li did an astounding job of just like laying out the story here. And I was so impressed that I now have like kept an eye out for any of her future books. I definitely want to see 
what you could that's, come that's, to. That's, that's a good thing, right? That's a great thing. The moment that you fall in love with like an author's writing style, uh, you kind of like keep your antennas, like just the feelers open all the time. Like, hey, when's, when's the next thing? What are some of the books that you would suggest? I mean, you're a lit major, so I'm expecting at least two or three. At least two. Oh, yeah. We could go on and on. Uh, actually, the ones that I've... Thankfully, thankfully, one of the people that I worked with very closely uh, during my media days was this brilliant man named Sufian Hakim. And he's published a, a number of things. In fact, I think last year he published, during the pandemic, he published a series of short stories, actually, which uh, came together as a compilation published by Ethos. It was called The Keeper of Stories. Yes, The Keepers of Stories. Now that, that is a really uh, interesting one. So what, what he does really well is not just the way he tells stories, but the subliminal ways of of talking about, about issues and, and ideas that Singaporeans uh, face. In fact, if you read The Minorities, which is a book I would also highly recommend, uh, published in 2017, it's very interested in really the minority experience, but never told in a straight way. It's not as slice of life as you think it is. Not to spoil it, but put it this way, there is some level of science fiction going on here. So mm-hmm. uh, go go pick it up. My, I think Minorities was is one of the novels which... To a fresh reader, if you haven't read a book in a long while, it's still very accessible. And if you read, you know, if reading is part of your habits, uh, I don't think the minorities will disappoint at all. Oh, right. So we've, we've covered many stories, Rovit, you and I. Really good, like, coverage, I feel, of, of not just the authors, but, you know, their intentionality, the topics that they want to go down the rabbit hole on. Exactly, Elliot. But before we wrap up, let's hear from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by National Library Board's One Story. This year's one story is Ratsi by Dr. Saeda Bua. The story was originally written in Malay, but under the one story campaign, you can now read the same story in all four languages. Here's a synopsis. Every day is a painful struggle for Nani, the mother of Razi, a boy with special needs. As Nani finds herself increasingly frustrated by society's lack of understanding and empathy for Razi's condition, she is by turns swayed and pressured by her sister's incessant cajoling to seek help from a traditional Malay healer. Nani keeps the treatment a secret from her husband, out of fear and perhaps guilt. Razi is slowly tamed into obedience. The healer sees it as progress, but is submission into silent acquiescence a cure at all? Razi will make you ponder over the great lengths people would go to and the sacrifices they make for their loved ones. Readers will be tempted to weigh in on the dilemmas that Nani has to grapple with and tread along the emotional rollercoaster of her struggle and guilt. Will we condemn her choices or empathize with her challenges? That's so cool. This is a, it's a very exciting story. What I really liked about it is that it's originally written in Malay, right? So I think as with any sort of writing that is done in, in a certain language, you tend to draw from a lot of the cultural sort of context as well as maybe nuances, right, of the language that, that comes through. And so I'm very curious to see how that is translated across different languages and I appreciate that this effort, the one story effort, is not just about translation, right? It's about really telling a story written in one context and bringing it to other languages but retaining that context almost, helping you see and connect with those cultures, right? And that's the value of literature. That's really what I'm excited about with this whole one story movement. Oh, likewise. I, I think that's really cool. The fact that we're going to learn a bit about what is what is a Malay healer, honestly? Like I personally have not engaged, right, as, as a Singaporean Chinese male. Very difficult for me to re- to broach that subject, but through literature, you get to explore a lot of ideas, a lot of perspectives, and that to me has so much value. Now, if you guys want to learn more, you can head over to www.go.gov.sg/one story to learn more about the One Story campaign. 
and be sure to head down to your nearest library to borrow the book or read it on the NLB mobile app in any of Singapore's four languages. All right, and that brings us to the end of this episode. Once again, big shout out and thanks to NLB's One Story uh, for letting us, you know, go deep down into this into this topic that's so close to my heart. And Rovik has found this appreciation over the years that we've spent time with each other. So, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> but yeah, but but honestly, what a what an incredible honor and pleasure uh, to kind of share these thoughts with you guys, share the movement, uh, share the insights into our past. And most of all, it's just great to be back. We'll see you guys in the next season of SG Explained. We're close to a month away from, you know, having our next release. We'll see you guys in the next one. Have a good one. All right.